Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Hello and welcome to Raw, the 90s rave podcast with me, your presenter, Tom Latcham. Uh, on Raw, we span the entire gamut of the 90s rave scene, including some of the originators of that sound. And today's guest not only helped kick off the 90s rave scene, but he transcended mainstream British society, albeit largely because of the distinctive dust mask that he became famous for. But he's not just famous for being 30 years ahead of the uh, PPE rush. He's also behind some of the biggest bangers in rave history with Bizarre Inc., Nexus 21, and then Alternate more famously. Moving from Acid House Hero into early hardcore and beyond, it's the one uh, what's the one and only, I should say, Mark Archer. How you doing, Mark? I'm oh, great, thank you. Uh, cheers for joining me, mate. appreciate it. Um, of all the guests that we've featured so far... You are perhaps one of the 90s rave scenes originators and that you were creating Acid House in the late 80s. Do you feel like your work did help lead to the explosion of rave music that we uh, that we saw in the 1990s? I, I don't know whether I'd ever blow my own trumpet to say that you know, we, we, we helped. I mean, we, we, you know, we were there uh, in various guises, you know, working with Dean right at the very start um, when we were doing... Acid House. I mean, we, we went into the studio wanting to do acid and uh, cajoled into doing hip hop and bomb the bass kind of stuff. Um, but I get, I, I guess it's probably just because the fact I'm I'm older than most people that I was there at the start, really. Uh, well, we're going to come on to uh, your music career in a bit, but I, I'd actually like to start a little bit differently this week because you and your partner have been quite heavily involved in the We Are Viable campaign, which aims to pressure the government into supporting live music. I know that your partner's more heavily involved than you are, but um, you, are, you are doing stuff around it. And you've also lived through a previous time as well where the government seemed to have it in for rave music. Oh, so I, I want to know what the last year, if you could paint a picture about what the last year has been like for you as someone who works in live music. Um, I mean, last last year started off pretty well, to be honest. Uh, everything was was going swimmingly, and then uh, there was mention of of coronavirus. I think I, I actually did a post um, on the alternate page in January about it because there was whispers about it, but no one thought it was going to do what it's done um, and affect the industry the way it has done. Um, there was a few gigs where it was a bit weird. I mean, I went out to um, to Madrid um, shortly before the the lockdown in the UK, and it was, you know, it was a slight worry because it, it hit Madrid quite quite badly. Um, and then we did uh, the Bang Face Weekender, which was the last um, party that was allowed to go ahead in this country. Um, it, it had already started on the Thursday. And then I think the lockdown happened on, on the Saturday. So we were all up there. And Bang Face is a bit of a weird party anyway. You know, the the vibe in there is completely uh, yeah, off mad. the hook. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> and and a lot of people were saying, you know, when the when the real world is weirder than what's going on in Bang Face, <laughs> you, know, you know something's up. Um, and then, we, you know, we came back from that and it was just like a domino effect watching – my bookings for the rest of the year, you know, one after another, after another, after just folding. Um, how, did you feel, how did you feel about that? Uh, I mean, it's quite, it's quite crushing watching your career slowly disappear, you know, one after another. And you have no idea when there's going to be an end to it. Terrifying, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, and it is 
my main source of income. You know, it's it's what I do uh, week in, week out. So all of a sudden you're left with what 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 am I going to do? Um, the government um, d- didn't think the industry was viable whatsoever. Um, told people to pretty much like Thatcher did, get on your bike, um, go out and retrain and start doing all these lovely little uh, pictures of mm. people from the entertainment industry retraining to, to go and do, oh, you didn't know you were going to be an accountant. <laughs> Fantastic. Cheers for that. Um, so are you going to work in yeah. fibre now, Mark? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> luckily, when I left school um, and after I did a YTS scheme, for those who remember YTS schemes and YOP schemes, um, I, I was a painter and decorator for um, a few years just before I started making music in 88. Okay. So it's, it's something I've been able to slightly fall back on just to help out but obviously you wouldn't be able to start up your own company and and just get loads of work in straight away you know it's been a it's been a, a, a massive struggle yeah I'm sure, and i'm sure a struggle for i mean this str- a struggle for everybody but in particular anyone who's listening who's involved in that live music and it's not just the artist is it there's a whole industry behind it and and that was i think yeah. was the basis for we are viable the name of course comes off rishi sunak the chancellor saying that musicians and art were not viable and they should retrain now i don't know whether that was a uh i like to feel like it was a bit of a slip of the tongue but perhaps it did uh, also coincidentally uh, give an idea about how they did view the arts industry. How did you feel when you were told you're not viable? Well, it's how can anyone who you know, obviously you know they get they get paid a lot of money for going around not attending um, Parliament, sitting there and all that rubbish. They do very little for for what they're paid for, and then they're telling people who who bring so much joy um, that we're not viable. It's it's. It just shows the, the the massive them and us kind of divide that that there is. Um, well, I'm interested to know. So back in the early '90s, Alternate, who you are the act, this the act that you're most famous for, they felt like they were steeped in political connotations, um, and that was due to the way that the government was treating the rave community at the time. But not just the rave community, but but they were treating the rave community as priors. Really, um, is that a reasonable assessment to say that? It, it, yeah, it was. I mean, it was something that they they couldn't control and wanted to control for some strange reason um but i, I guess it's all, always the way whenever there's a youth movement you know the, the the establishment try and try and squash it for fear of some kind of revolt i mean it's, it was, i mean it's i think we've learned over the years that kids can't even be bothered to vote so i don't think yeah. that they're going to be revolting anytime soon especially when you painted it in black and white film you, you know all we wanted to do is is dance but obviously dancing something to be feared of by them. Uh, how did you feel to have the government cracking down on raves back then, both you personally and, and collectively as a, as a music scene? Um, you felt like you'd finally found this kind of escapism from everything that was going on in the 80s. Uh, you know, it was pretty pretty grim time. Um and then there was these parties where you could go to and just let off a bit of steam. And, and all of a sudden, it was f- like I can remember going up to, to Stoke to different acid parties. And you'd go to one one week, next week it would be closed. And then two weeks later, something else would start up. And you'd go to that one for a couple of weeks and then that would be closed. And you're just like, give, it, give us a break. You know, what, 
what is it that everyone's doing wrong and what what is the problem with this and how did you try to combat it again both personally and collectively as a scene well it was it was it drove it underground because it started in the you know the small clubs and it obviously drove it to a point where well if if we can't do this the proper way um there's going to be um, illegal raves happen which the you know they did up and down up and down the country then of course it, things got heavy, quite heavy-handed with the the police presence there. I mean, some some police forces used common sense, you know, and allowed things to go on if if no trouble was being caused. Some the the police turned up and that caused the trouble. You know, people they just wanted to go somewhere and have a dance, and then the police turned up in riot vans and it caused problems, which then you know has that led to the sensationalism in the in the newspapers. I mean, it's obviously very different uh, in terms of what's going on at the moment because we are in the middle of a, a global pandemic. So that does bring its own uh, difficulties as as far as organising. I mean, you can't do it uh, legally, certainly. But do you yeah. see any pattern? Uh, there have been a, an increase in illegal raves during this time, or certainly there appears to be. But actually, to be honest, it appears that there's been an increase in illegal raves over the last few years, full stop, underneath this Tory government. And do you see parallels with how, yeah, how the oh, government totally. behaved back in your heyday and, and with, with what's going on now? Totally. I mean, if if you'd had said to anyone, you, you know, the, the political situation is going to be as bad as it is, there's going to be illegal raves and acid houses back, no one would have believed you. Um, but it it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you feel like the government is using the pandemic in a way as an excuse to kill off the sort of nightlife that it, it doesn't really like? And, and that can be evidenced in in even just the cultural recovery fund where they've placed their money. I, I don't think they needed the pandemic as an excuse. I mean, you've, you've seen the amount of clubs that are being closed down or, you know, the, the trouble that, that places like Fabric went went into, um, you know, that. They're dead set on on squashing it, however they can do it. You know, you'd think that they'd have learnt over the the thirty years that it's not a bad thing. I mean, you look at places like Berlin, you know, where mm. the, they, the the government actively you know promotes the clubbing scene, and this country they just want to close it down. And Holland as well. I think yeah. they're giving uh, festivals uh, a, a pot of money for those that might not uh, come come back. But they seem to be very keen, the government, to say, look, you know, you can have these festivals. We want these festivals to happen. And they are genuinely money-making. You know, it goes towards yeah. the economy. I don't... I don't. I, I, I honestly can't understand it. Is it just because it's Tories being Tories? It's the old Etonians. They don't like acid house, <laughs> do they? Hey? <laughs> I, thought, I thought Tony Colton Hater was one of those types. And uh, yeah, he was one of the early organisers, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and and what impact do you feel this time around that the We Are Viable campaign has had? And you probably have to be a bit careful with this answer because your partner is probably just sitting next to you. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, she's just over there. <laughs> be <Yeah>. careful, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, the campaign started as a, just a way of, of, to help um, the industry in any way possible. Um, originally, I think everyone was looking at the government to you know, bail um clubs venues what you know whatever artists out but the the government weren't interested in that at all so the, the, there's been a change of tact over the year where it's now gone to um proving that things are possible 
Um, the, the government basically want you to lay out a plan to show them that this is safe, that's safe. You can do this with this amount of numbers. You know, the, the infections rate would be like zero. Um, and, and, and just trying to, to show a roadmap back to, uh, to some kind of club culture. Um, but obviously the, the, the government don't, <laughs> they don't listen um, to, what? to what's I'll, the, no, I'm yeah. not having that. I mean, uh, shock uh, horror. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what do you, so what is the so what are you doing? Uh, not you, but you know the campaign. What is We Are Viable still doing? Because I know that there was a, when it launched, there was quite a sort of um, particularly in the in the dance music social media, there was a lot of of noise around it. We're, yeah. we're quite some time on since that. What, what's what's still going on with the We Are Viable? Well, campaign? it's. It, it, Originally, it was trying to get all the voices together rather than it be so splintered. You know, there were so many different organisations starting up, all wanting to be heard. And it was like, rather than us all be shouting from different areas, let's all get together and, and, and try and have one kind of voice. Um, they're working very closely with the NTIA at the moment, trying to find out ways... What's the um, what, what's the NTIA for those that don't know? No, I'm going to be correct. Oh, good luck. <laughs> Nighttime industry. industry association. Yeah, there you okay. go. All right, okay, we got there eventually. <laughs> thank, thank you, Mrs. Archer. Cheers, <laughs> <laughs> mate. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so, so they're they're working with them um, to. to Try and um, you know, there's been studies done in different countries showing that um, uh, outdoor events, not not of huge scale like like Glastonbury, but outdoor events, um, the the risk of infections because it's outdoor, and you know, if as long as people are, are semi socially distancing, the the infection rates uh, are, are very low because the the government have got it into their head straight away. You know, when you're all close, this is going to happen, kind of thing, and you've got to try and prove to them um as as well as um because of the there's obvious uh risks to people's mental health throughout the year so the the we are viable campaign they've also uh, tried to get through a, a load of resources together on their website um you know facebook pages everything like that for people who need help um you know who were who suffering um they they've also been working on a, a, it, it a virtual Sorry, Mark. I was going to say. I mean, it must. Um, you just cut out a little bit, so I, I'll ask you the next question. But it, it must um, feel at times. I. I mean, I certainly feel it uh, as somebody who thinks that the way we're doing these lockdowns is way over the top. Uh, and you are. I'm. I'm a tiny voice that is crowded out by people being, as I see it, quite hysterical. But it must feel in the we are viable campaign, regardless of whether you believe the lockdowns are the right thing to do, etc., that you are pushing something of a, a, a large boulder uphill against this government. Oh yeah, um, purely for the fact that just as with Acid House and they, you know, demonise it, blah blah blah. The, the government have come out with very strict. Right, this is how it is, and you're not allowed to do this. And and trying to get them to listen or, um, you know, offer them different ways. It, it, it's they'll they'll shout it down. Um, so it, it's it's got to be a constant thing where. You, you keep proving to them that, that things are possible. And how is it um, we are, <coughs> excuse me, how are we a viable being funded? Is, it, is there a way that people can donate if they would uh, like to get involved? Um, there is a, a way. If you go onto the, the website, um, there is a, a way you can donate. Um, 
our donated portion of the the profits to the uh, the new single that we got out uh, to, just to try and help because they're, they're all people who are from the industry various various places in the industry all working you know and they've been working very long days to try and help um and they're, they're all doing this for for nothing um but they they do need help so if if there is you know anyone out there who can uh, donate it would be fantastic yeah it's the we are viable campaign and um you've been sort of through this once before not a pandemic but uh the government as we say trying to crack down on raves uh, and you've come out the other side of it before and i've got no doubt you'll come out the other side of this one too oh, yeah, yeah. But when you do come out the other side of this what impact do you think the past year and what we've seen will have both on the modern day rave scene and also modern day rave music i'd like to think that um people would actually live in the moment a bit more when it all um comes back again um i'm i'm aware you know there there are cycles of um behavior where things happen like people filming everything at, at the moment um you know and it's like you go to a rave and you see everyone filming so you start doing it and it just gets passed on because everyone thinks it's the norm it, it'd be nice if once we kind of you know everyone's like you know sod filming it let's let's just let's have a dance um you know and, and people go for it because you never thought that we weren't going to be able to do it well, so, now people are going to be filming because they're like, look at what we've got we're, now. We're, we're back. And it's, <laughs> it, it, it would be nice if, you know, there weren't, there weren't so many phones up in the air and everyone just really enjoyed it for what it is and, you know, made the most of it. And what about the music, do you think? Because, as I say, you've been through it before and the music will have been impacted. But it, music is always impacted by external influences. So you've been through it before. You've seen those external influences and how they influenced the music in the 90s. What about now, do you think? Um, I mean, the, the, the way the club scene went, um, it, it, it fractured a lot. I don't know whether there's, it, it's, it's so fractured at the moment. I don't think um, it can fracture anymore. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's just going to be a lot of, of really feel-good music about. Um, and, 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 and this is why I play the old school stuff, because, you know, there's, there's not a lot of music around that's, that's quite like it with such a euphoric nature. So <laughs> hopefully I'll get a booking when it's all done. Well, I, I hope that it goes back to, uh, to, to uh, I'd like to see mixed arenas. That's what I'd like to see. I yeah. think, you know, I think there was too much fracturing um, and then therefore all the events are quite small and, and there's never a coming together. I'd like to see a big coming together. Yeah. Uh, whether or not we do see that is another matter. We're going to be back very shortly with Mark Archer to uh, rifle him on the quickfire round, our famous raw quickfire round, to really get to know him. It's about a pressure. It's about a roar. This is Raw, the 90s Ray podcast with me, Tom Latcham, interviewing Mark Archer. Uh, we're going to try and find about a bit, uh, Mark, about the man behind the mask, because uh, uh, I know you've done lots of interviews, but... Not those interviews often ask just about the music rather than a bit about yourself. So I'm interested to know a, a bit more about you. Right. Uh, I mean, we know your real name, although do you have any middle names? No, no, I was. Um, no. I, they were toying with the idea of either calling me Ant, uh, Aaron or Anthony as a middle name. But my brother didn't have a middle name. So then my dad decided against it. OK, uh, what's your age? How old are you? 52, nearly 53. Nearly 53. When's your birthday? July. 
I'll say nearly. Okay, well, well no, yeah. that's not nearly. I, I mean, that's completely, yeah. that feels like a really long way away. Uh, and uh, where are you originally from? Um, a little place uh, near Wolverhampton called Bishopswood. It was a hamlet. It wasn't even a, a village. It was that, that tiny. But okay. uh, moved, moved to Stafford when I was about 10 or around Stafford and been there ever since until about 2011. Oh, where do you live now? Uh, Redditch. Okay. Is that far? I don't know. I don't know the, that it's, Midlands it's area just, that well. Just south of Birmingham. Okay, fine. And uh, what's your relationship status? I mean, I know the answer to this because yes. uh, we're going to come on to it at a later point because yeah. you got married at Bangface, which is I, I did, uh, which yes. is amazing, but also slightly mental. Um, <laughs> so your relationship status, you are married. <laughs> yeah, I am, yeah, yeah. Fully okay. married. Good, good. And uh, do you have any children? And if so, how old are they? I have three children myself, and Nikki has two children, so Christmases are quite uh, fun times. Um, oh. I have three children, uh, Harry, uh, Liam, and Emma. Emma's 26, Liam's 23, and Harry's, he'll be 21 in a couple of weeks. Well remembered. Uh, and uh, well, I'm going to ask you, I'll ask you a bit about your, your kids later, and, and, and I'm interested, not about your kids necessarily, but the relationship with them and how it was right. impacted on the fact that you were constantly travelling, uh, doing these, these gigs at the weekends and that sort of stuff. We'll come to that later. Um, right. What is your favourite, what, what sort of music do you like, do you really like, except rave music? Um, I try not to play rave stuff at home. So that oh, really? I don't, yeah, so I don't, because, well, I mean, at the moment, obviously, it's different, but uh, with me playing every weekend, I didn't yeah. ever want to get to a point where I've overheard something, keep playing it, you know, so every every Saturday it would right. be a bit, you know, kind of fresh again. Um, so I, I listened to <laughs> after 30 years. I mean, that's years, the problem with old school, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I listened to a lot of, like, uh, early electro, um, you know, the, the Street Sounds compilations, Um 80s uh, soul and funk stuff like that but also a lot of the like the new um the the new breakbeat stuff um you know where where people are doing like the the early jungle or the like the 92 91 uh, breakbeat kind of sound so that okay. yeah into a lot of that yeah okay um and what's your tipple of choice uh gin really any in any kind of gin to be honest Straight? <laughs> no, no. No, you've got to have a mixer. Okay, not straight that, out of the bottle. Um, that, that has happened. It's course, not a good yeah. look. It's happened to us all. Uh, and uh, what's your favourite movie? It's probably Beat Street, um, and closely followed by Star Wars. Okay, and, Star Wars. You know, the Star Wars trilogy. Are you, a, are you a bit of a sci-fi sort of uh, type? Just, just really Star Wars. Never got into okay. to Star Trek, really. Okay. Uh, and do you have any secret hobbies? I, I, when I was a kid, I was a keen, keen bird watcher. There's a blackbird just there. That's why I stopped. A, a keen bird watcher. So it's always... A junior always, twitcher. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of junior now. <laughs> uh, so I'm always, I'm always into, into birds. Yeah. Oh, really? Did you, yeah. So how did you get into that? Um, I think I got bought a, a, a bird book when I was when I was little, um, and just uh, obviously read it a lot. My dad used to pick up on things that he, he'd noticed you liked something, and would encourage it without you know really pushing it. Um, mm. um, and he bought me a pair of binoculars, and, and where we used to live in this little hamlet, I'd, I'd, you wouldn't do it these days, but I'd like walk, you know, two, three miles and go and lie in a field and watch lapwings, really? you know, and, and I was only, you know, um, 
eight or nine. Did you join the RSPB? Uh, yes, I did. You were a junior twitcher. I was, yeah. I've got, mine, I, I've got a mate of mine who used to be a junior twitcher, and I do like reminding him of that fact. Um, and you, do you still, you still have a keen interest in birds? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a, a lake near us, um, and there's there's cormorants there, and there's there's been a I think it's a, a little egret has been uh, spotted there this week. So you know, we pop down there and go and have a look. Yeah. Well, to be fair. During lockdown, there's not a lot to do. But the one no. thing that hasn't changed is the is the number of birds. And actually, during that last lockdown, I bet you had, had a fantastic time bird watching because there was there was no planes in the sky, and actually, it felt like nature came back a bit, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've we've had while the weather was great at the beginning of of last year when lockdown first started, we had like a, a massive flock of seagulls on the estates where we live, and they're not normally here. Um, so we were putting like um, food up on top of the shed for them to come. Didn't realise that the next door neighbour absolutely hated seagulls. <laughs> uh, well, I bet you're popular with the next door neighbours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, <laughs> do, do you have a sporting hero? Are you into sport? I've never really uh, been much of a sporty person, but I guess people like you know Muhammad Ali were were big heroes. You know when I, when I was a kid. Okay, and what's the best thing about you? And I suppose that's one that could be a question for Mrs. Archer. What's the best thing about me? I'm apparently a nice bloke. I think that's probably fair. Allegedly, I've been told it a few times. Okay, that's good. And what's your worst trait? Um, Again, maybe one for Mrs. Archer. Yeah, yeah. Years years ago, um, I used to have a a proper temper on me, Um, but. it's it's something you can blame on your parents, you know, if they they have it too. I mean, my dad used to have an, an awful temper, um, but it's it's something where you can either blame them and carry on, or or decide to change. And and I decided to to stop being angry. Good for you. And to be honest, uh, the older one gets, you know, the, generally the less angry you would hope you would get because. Yeah. It's not a great look to be a, an angry old man. Is it? There's a difference between angry and grumpy there. <laughs> That's true. Are you still, yeah. You've got the grumpy down, but you're just oh, not angry anymore. Yeah, grumpy's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, that's a, a little bit more about Mark Archer that you've got to know for the, uh, if you didn't know. I mean, who would have guessed that the man behind the mask was a bird watcher? But there you go. He's a bird watcher. Uh, we're going to find out more about him very shortly here on uh, Raw as we go into his early life and raving. So, Mark, let's go back to the beginning because we talked about the We Are Viable and how you've been through so many changes to the rave scene and the parallels with the rave scene before and to now. But let's go right back to the start. Um, and actually, I mean, this, is, this isn't really going back to the start. It's more about you as a person. But can you describe yourself in five words? Describe myself in five words. Um, bold. That's a good one. Pardon. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> shy, which is something that a lot of people don't don't think really? I am. Yeah, um, um, not un, not confident at all. Um, really, and it's it's with what I do, people would expect it. Um, but it, yeah, um, sensitive. Yeah, the wife's okay. nodding. Okay, um, well, they're all nice qualities. They're all good qualities. Yeah. 
And the the, the, um, <clears throat> the being shy is something I'm going to come back to in a bit because I wonder whether that was that made the masks and and yeah, quite useful. It, it helped. Uh, it helped. Okay. Okay. Uh, what got you into rave music in the first place? Uh, was there a, a first tune that inspired you to get into rave music? Did someone give you a tape? What was it? I think because of my age, uh, I was there like uh, into you know the breakdancing thing, um, the soul. Um, and when house, you know, first started hearing house tunes played in amongst all the soul and electro and stuff. Um, so it was a bit of a, a natural progression, really. So it was, you, you just kind of got into things as they evolved. So, you know, I was into the, the, the early house and the acid house. Um, and then when people in, from different countries started making stuff, you know, like the, 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 the Belgian new beat and stuff and then the Belgian techno and, and like people like Frankie bones, you know, adding break beats and stabs and all the rest. And it just, how it all evolved. I just kind of followed, followed it all the way through. Um, were, you, were you from a musical family? Do, my do, dad's, do, you, do you view yourself as musical? Um, <laughs> I, I put, I put together tunes if, if that's the, yeah, I, I don't class myself as musical. Um, I, I can do a rough tune, but that's about, you know, I'm not like classically trained or anything like a lot. I wish I was. It yeah. would have helped a lot. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> but my, my dad was, he was a, a singer um, in a okay. in a local band, um, you know, playing like ja, like cabarets and jazz clubs and, you know, working men's clubs, that kind of thing. He was the, the lead vocalist and the conga player as well. Um, and... He was a family friend that we called an uncle who lived across the road, and he he was the drummer. So he do, he he gave us like a snare drum, um, uh, a cymbal stand with different cymbals and stuff like that. So we'd all, always have stuff like knocking about, like a pair of congas and a pair of bongos. Um, so we were always tatting about with stuff like that when we when we were kids. Um, but it was I I think it was just a genuine interest of wanting to know how they did certain things on, on electro records. Never, I never imagined that I was going to start making music. It was just like, I wonder how they do that. Um, and then I, I bought a, a small sampler from uh, Dixon's and just to, I mean, I, mean, I would say yeah. I'd be, I could be probably quite bold in saying that that was probably the best purchase of your life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it, and it, it how was, much was it? Um, I mean, my dad, my dad actually, paid for it and i had to pay him back because i was on a the yts scheme and you know you're only earning what like 15 quid a week so he 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 bought it and i just gave him like five or a ten or but i think it was it was around like 100 quid so it seemed like a you know you know a massive purchase at the time um but it, it it was that the fact that someone knew that i had that that got um like me and Dean working together. Um, so if it wasn't for that keyboard, I don't think it would have ever, you know, alternate bizarre ink. None of it would have happened. But it does just show you, doesn't it? Because you talk about your, your dad um, help sort of inspiring you to become mm. into birds, but not pushing it too heavily. And again, you know, you, he obviously saw that With you had music. a a desire for music or to create music and he went out and did that and it's a, it, yeah. there's a lesson there, isn't there in, in, in parenting, which yeah. is, which is to, don't be too heavy. Just sort of g along your yeah. kids' passions, and they will find and they will find their groove. 
but he, he did he did actually give me like the biggest ultimatum um when i'd been doing the music for a bit and it, it kind of like stopped and there was a job in the village going as a butcher and he said like like you're trying the music and you're not making any money out of it or there's a guaranteed job there as a butcher every they'll always need butchers so you know it's but he said this is your choice because if you go and be a butcher you'll always think what if and he said it's totally your choice and i've i chose the music um maybe was it the the right choice (laughs) (laughs) maybe not who knows (laughs) what if (laughs) Uh, and uh, and what was your first rave then because you were you were obviously into the rave music but you were quite young at the time being on a yts when did you go to your first rave Um, what was it can you describe the feelings and, and 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 what drew you in I think, I think that, I mean, I was going to like, you know, the usual kind of ritzy kind of club on a Saturday um, from when I was uh, like 17. But the, the, a club opened from going to those kind of things where you had to wear, wear like shirt and tie and shoes and trousers. And, and then the, a club opened in Stoke um, called Frenzy. Um, and it was, I think it was on a Tuesday night. And all they played was Acid House. And you, you went into this venue and the club bit was downstairs. So you went, it was like a pub upstairs and you all sat there and everyone got like their smiley t-shirts on and bandanas and stuff. I mean, I, I wore like a pair of jeans and I'd gone to HMV and bought a smiley t-shirt. It was a really crap one, but it was just, I had to wear something that, that you thought was right. Um, and went downstairs and it was just drapes. Everywhere was black. There was a strobe, a UV, and loads of smoke to the point where if you put your hand there, you couldn't see your hand. It was just... But it, it, the difference between what I'd been going to on a Saturday, Friday and Saturday, you know, going to a pub first, then going to, like, Top of the World or Ritz or whatever and listening to a bit of chant music and then go downstairs and listen to a bit of soul or whatever. To that, it was just, like totally different worlds you know and it just absolutely blew your head uh, and how then did you develop into a full-on raver i mean we can talk about your music separately but but you, you got in, big into raves you'd often i've heard interviews in the past with you before where you you talk about going to shelley's uh, whenever you weren't performing yeah. so you obviously were bang into being a, a oh, raver. Yeah. How, how did that then develop from that first event into well, going out all the time I well, I, I, I caught caught the bug with the the frenzy thing, so we'd go there like every single week, and then that that like I said earlier, that closed, and then another one opened uh, close by. So we we went to like various like acid things, and then the following year, the music opened up slightly. I mean, we were still going to the the weird Saturday night thing, but now we were wearing you know like. Uh, flowery shirts and little waistcoats and stuff doing the acid dance um, and everyone think i mean we cleared the floor there was like four of us and we went there and started doing the dance and no one in stafford had seen it and everyone left the dance floor just thinking what are these weirdos doing um but it, it was like a progress like with the music you just went to like different venues there was one in stoke um a night called introspective um uh, I mean, we even played there as, as Nexus 21 in 1990. Um, and the, all, like, the bleepy stuff and, like, stuff from, from America and, like, Frank DeWolf tracks being played there. 
Um, and then there, there is the raves at the Birmingham rag market. And they, they were, they were originally called timeouts, but the magazine, um, stopped them using the name because <laughs> they used the name and the logo. Um, so they changed their name to time. Um, so it was like a progression through the different styles of music in clubs. And then when the raves started going, going to those. So there was no, I, I think, you know, frenzy was like the, the first ever thing like that, that I ever went to. And uh, many rave artists, I've been shocked by this, actually. Many rave artists say that they don't really do drugs. Um, I'm interested, to, I mean, and I ask everybody, everyone that we interview, what about you? I, I didn't have a clue <laughs> what, <laughs> who, who was. Uh, who, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people have said, like, um, Space from Asterix in Space, he used to say to me, how can you make tunes like that with little bits in your tunes that like people who are off their nut that's oh that's my bit he's like you're making tunes with those bits in he's like how can you do it I, we, we played um i think it was um a perception um and i'd got a a, a red cavalier estate at the time it's like the second car and we needed an estate car to put like the big alternate um keyboard fronts in the back um and i got like um Asterix in space and a couple of our mates from Sheffield with me. And we're all, we're all sat in the car around the back of the, the stage and everyone got out to, to go back into the crowd. And someone said, oh, I've left this here for you. And there was like half a pill on the back seat. And I was just, I was just too scared because in, in my musical career, I'm very lucky. I've been at the right place at the right time. Loads of things of really like just pure look, but, Day to day, I'm, I'm pretty unlucky where, you know, you've got no money and then the machine, washing machine will, will break down or your car will break down. And you're just like, oh, why, why is this always happening to me? And I just thought I'm going to be one of those people who takes a pill and it's going to be the whole Leah Betts thing. And I'm just, you know, it, I was enjoying it that much. Like I'd be there before the club opened. I'd be one of the last people dancing at a rave, you know, at six in the morning. Um, when people were like gurning the tits off, I'd think that was them doing their bass face. So I'd be there like screwing my face up thinking <laughs> that's what they were doing. And I'd not taken a thing, you know, I was so naive about the whole thing. Cause I didn't, I didn't know who was off there or, or who wasn't. It's interesting then you, <clears throat> so you didn't do drugs. And so you were creating music for people on drugs without being actually on drugs. It, was that just an accident then that you made them so good for people on drugs or, or it, did or did you ask people? I don't know. Like it, it seems incongruous. It, it, just, just an accident. I think because I was so into the music. Obviously, other tunes may have been made by people who were doing right. stuff, and it's like you kind of knew, you know, certain bits that you needed. But I didn't know what it would do to you, you know, if you were off, you're not. Um, okay. it, it's just a happy accident, I guess. Okay. And how does a young bloke growing up in rural Staffordshire start? Oh, I know you moved to Stafford, but you know, you did started off in a hamlet. How does uh, a young bloke from there go to, you know, start creating music and then become eventually part of one of 90s Rave's biggest acts? Um, Ac accidentally, it, I think you're going to say yeah, it, it, it was, honestly. Um, I bought that little, um, the little sampler and. I knew Dean, um, Dean Meredith, from the breakdancing days. 
um, I used to ride in from from Nosal, which is a village outside Stafford, ride into Stafford to watch the guys break dance and, and eventually, you know, follow them around, knew them kind of thing, did a bit of body popping and what have you. Um, and then a few years later, I'd been doing the painting and decorating and the firm didn't have enough work. So it was a, a kind of like last in, first out situation. So I'd gone into work in the morning. They'd said, we've got no work. You're out of a job. So I walked back into town to go and catch the bus home. As I walked past the co-op, there's Dean in the window. And he was a couple of years younger than me. And I was like, stood there laughing at him because he was all like got shirt and tie on and everything. And he was doing his school work experience. And he said, I can't come in, went in. He said, oh, I've, I've moved house now. Um, I'm living out in, in Brockton, another village just outside Stafford. I've got like my turntable set up. Bring your keyboard with you. And we'll just, you know, just do some jamming. So took, I've still actually got the tape and it's horrendous of the stuff that we did. But he used to like get two copies of, of a drum beat mix that together, I play like a bass line or some pads or a vocal sample over the top. Um, and then we get that cassette, play it through his, his setup again, and he does some scratching over the top and just make some, some rough demos. And there was a local newspaper called the, the Staffordshire Newsletter, and it said that a recording studio had opened up and they were making a big fuss of, of this band who did like... Uh, Duran Duran and Simple Minds covers but we thought oh, sorry, you know, we'll, we'll go up there with this cassette took the cassette there and the bloke signed us up there and then oh really? yeah uh, so, <clears throat> and then how did uh, and how did that then progress to what we saw with you later on and you, you know, bizarre ain't you at Nexus 21 and then, and then also Top of the Pops ultimately with, with Alternate <laughs> what happens then? Did they, did they help sort that out? Was that, was that the studio? Or did it manage <laughs> The, the first instance was he gave us a lot of studio time. Right. Um, what we didn't realise was we weren't going to get paid for anything that we ever did. Um, but we, we eventually, myself and Dean, worked up to – there was already an engineer when we, when we first started going there, and he showed us how to use all the gear there. And then he left, so we ended up being the engineers at the studio. Um, but there wasn't many clients coming into the studio. So we'd just spend all day, like put a cassette in, put like a high-pitched voice on a, on a microphone and just sit there and witter, you know, and just do like full scene 90s full of us talking rubbish. Um, so we wasted uh, like a hell of a lot of time. But in, in between times, we'd like make uh, tracks we did. We started off as Rhythm OD. Um, because the bloke wanted us to do more kind of like bomb the bass style music, uh, sample scratching. Um, so we, we did Rhythm OD, we did some breakbeat albums and eventually allowed us to do an Acid House album, which we, we, we wanted to do when we first started there. So we waited, you know, like at least six months before he allowed us to do that. Um, and then we wanted to do a techno album after that so we called ourselves bizarre ink because we used to go around saying oh no way that's bizarre so it was just oh yeah we call ourselves bizarre and put put like a little ink or whatever on the end of it <clears throat> um and and we did the uh, an album and the album was quite like techno-y but we did a 12 inch where the one side was like a hip house track 
called It's Time to Get Funky. And the other one was Technological. One of the technary things, and it got to number hundred in the in the charts, which was like the first thing that you know we'd ever seen our music get anywhere. Um, and Dean decided he wanted to go solo, uh, but rather than say I, I want to go solo, he got me the sack from my job as a as an engineer. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> how, did you, how did you feel about that? Um, well. I, th- I thought he was a mate, but obviously, obviously mm. not. Um, he didn't seem to think that it was it was such a big deal. Uh, well, he, know, he, he fucking yeah. wouldn't, would he? Yeah. He hasn't you, lost his job. Yeah. <laughs> you, it's, it's all right. You can go and get another one. <laughs> um, oh, dear. So, so I was on the dole for a bit. Right. Um, so by, by which time um, Andy, who later joined Bizarre Inc., he'd started working there. He was mate. He'd got a mate called Chris. Um, so the two of them, they actually could play keyboards, whereas me and Dean couldn't. So we were making tracks and asking them, you know, oh, can you play these chords on there? Um, so I was on the dole for a bit, and then I phoned, phoned up the studio again and said, look, um, I've been listening to a lot of, like, Detroit techno. I want to do, like, a techno project. And he said, oh, you'll have to work with someone. I mean, he was very bitter for a bit. You know, they didn't want me back at the studio. But um, I don't know whether he changed his mind and thought, you know, what I was doing originally was he might sell something. So he allowed me back to the studio and said, you, you're going to have to work with Chris. And I didn't, didn't want to, but I couldn't play keyboards and he could. So, um, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's convenience. Our, yeah, that's, that's our Nexus 21 story. We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw. But now's where we ask you, inevitably, for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages at this project to create this podcast. And it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, We've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. And if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you hope you're enjoying it did you have any idea at any point what you like a defined idea or even any idea actually of what you wanted to be or a strategy to get on or find success, become a chart act, anything, or was it just all? No, it's all. Right. It's all pure. Just winging it. 
the whole. I mean, you say thing. you're unlucky, but actually, that's quite lucky. Yeah. In, in, yeah. You know, if you were weighing up lucky versus unlucky, that's pretty lucky. I mean, that's... in my career, I am. I, you know, things happen. They're just uh, right place, right time. You, Why do you, you think know? that is? Because that, that that it can't all be accidental. It can't be. I don't believe it. There must be something you did or you were doing that put you in a place where you were. I don't know. There's got. It can't all just be a total. No, no, honestly, no idea why. It's you know whether whether it balances out the bad karma that I get in normal <laughs> life. It's like actually we'll we'll give this kid a break here. <laughs> yeah. And how was but, your music inspired by where you came from? Um, because what was uh, what is or was the Midland sound in your eyes? It, it's weird because you didn't think that there was a sound um, because like, like Sheffield um, and Leeds and Bradford, you know, that, that, that had like the, the, the bleep thing. Um, and I, I think because there was like Nottingham who, who kind of liked, like with Rhythmatic, they did the, the, the bleepy stuff as well. I mean, I was bang into like the Detroit techno, um, and we we did the first album where it was just I want to sound like Derek, Kevin, and Juan. You know it, it, that was how I wanted to do it. Um, but then as as it progressed past that, uh, that that was on Blue Chip, and then Blue Chip folded, and and a, a chance another chance meeting in a nightclub. Uh, the boss of Network Records, and he says, "Oh yeah, I've got your album. Yeah, come and have a meeting with us." And we signed to Network, um, and then they'd got a release schedule kind of already built, and they started playing like you know the rhythmic stuff, and so it kind of what was being played kind of had a, a massive influence on on the way we did things. We still wanted to sound like Detroity, but incorporate the bleepy thing. So then we, we came out with self-hypnosis, which everyone said sounded like an ice cream bag. So did, so did you sort of create the Midland sound then, rather than reflecting the Midland sound? I, I, I just think it, it was a big melting pot because there wasn't any... Um, you know, like, like Acid came from Chicago and then the UK took it on and everyone did their version of, of Acid. Um, I think we were just, you know, there were other artists in Birmingham, but you, because there was no internet and, no, you know, there no social media, you just didn't know who was making tunes, where they were coming from. Um, so you were just going out listening to what was being played. So I guess the places that I went to and the music that they were playing had a massive influence. Um, like N Neil Macy, for instance, he, I, I met him in a little club called number sevens. It was a little wine bar, like mirrors on the walls and stuff, glass shelves for behind the bar and proper little tiny place. But around like, like 19, 1990, early eight, late 89, early 1990, he was the person I was going to every week and listening. So he really shaped what I was listening to. And I always used to take a copy of the first Nexus 21, 12 inch to any club that I went to and give it the DJ. And I went up to the DJ booth and he pulled it out of his record box. 
And it's like, right? oh my God, someone's actually bought my record. And, I mean, uh, I, think we're, I think we're finding how you've found your fortune. It seems you're going to clubs all the time and talking to people and meeting people and giving them your stuff. I mean, that's yeah. that's probably the answer, isn't it, rather than an accident? And and it, it was quite difficult because of being shy. But it's, <laughs> after, after going there, like, every week, I mean, it took me weeks to, to, to work up to take a copy it wasn't like the first week i'll go i'll just bowl in there you know it's like go and stand by the dj box a lot you know nod nod to the dj do that for a few weeks and then like, i'm like oh i've made a record mate <laughs> yeah um but the the one week he, he said he was he was thinking of packing it all in and then the next week he said oh i've i've got a, a job um the, the people who run cool cat records from birmingham um, and I knew the label, you know, they put a lot of, they the ones basically that brought Detroit techno to the UK. Um, they've got like a lot of the, the Chicago stuff on there as well. Uh, he said, oh, the boss is, is, is over there. I've just got a job as a, an, an A&R man. They're starting up a new label called Network. Go and have a word. I was like, there's no way I can go over and have a word with the record label boss. And so I went and stood there, and he was having a conversation. And I stood there like a plank for like 10 minutes, waiting for them to stop talking. And he just turned to me, you all right? Who are you, Mark from Nexus 21? And luckily, he'd heard of us, and he got the conversation going. Okay. Uh, it must have been quite an an exciting period. I know you did like a, quite an early collaboration with Man Paris, who was one of the uh, leading early Midlands MCs. But there will have been loads of people that you could, could have collaborated at that time. It must have been incredibly exciting at that age, oh, the potential totally. for so many interesting ex- uh, collaborations. I mean, um, we'd not long signed to Network. I mean, this, this was like, the, say, January 1990. Um, and I think it was like March, they sent us out to Detroit to, to work with, uh, Derek, Kevin and Juan, uh, in Kevin's studio and record some tracks over there. You know, they said, do some basics yourself, take your discs over with your sample discs and, and we'll, we'll work on the tracks because they knew we wanted to sound like Detroit artists. So they got uh, uh, Mark Kinch in, in, in the studio to do like the percussion on the track. So we sounded authentic. Um, those, those tracks actually came out last year for the first time. They've, they've sat on DAT since 1990. Wow. Um, so they, they were only released last year. But it, we came away with tracks sounding like we're actually from Detroit. You know, wow. it was, it was amazing. But being in the studio with uh, like Antonichka, uh, Kevin Saunderson, uh, Juan Atkins, Derek May, you know, go, going to like American football games with them all is just wow. absolutely mind blowing. What were they all like? So, absolutely sound. But I was, because they were already like my like musical heroes. So I was just absolutely gobsmacked for the, the entire week we were out there. Like, I didn't know what, didn't know what, couldn't believe, you know, what, what was going on. Like, we'd work in the studio for a day and then go to Kevin's apartment and he'd be there with his family. And he got like, it was like one of those soft dance mat kind of things plugged into his Nintendo. And we're playing like some Olympic running thing. And I'm, I'm standing there 
doing this on this dance mat thing, running next to Kevin Saunders, thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Just couldn't so, believe what was going on. Did they not think, who's this kid who just could, who, who's barely speaking, just looking at us like some yeah. sort of hero? Like, <laughs> but because of the, the connection with Neil Rushton, who, who ran, uh, you know, Cool Cat and, and Network, He'd been going over there originally to find like the um, Northern Soul releases, you know, going people's garages and buying like boxes of unheard of tunes. And someone said, "Oh, you want to hear this kind of music? This this is what's what's going on now." And got him into the whole techno thing. And he met Kevin Derrick and one and and Carl Craig and you know, Eddie Falks. Um, and apparently one of our tunes got played at the music institute which was a, a big club in in detroit and it was real love which which was the reason that nexus 21 started because i'd sampled the entire bass line off a of derrick may track and Derek May heard it and was, was going to break our kneecaps and, and, <laughs> until Neil said, no, no, it's cool, we've signed them. You know, they're, cool. they're doing it out of respect. They love your work. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I, in fact, I've, look, I've got, it would be remiss of me not to ask this question about Derek May because um, you were very close to him. He later suggested that you write the book, which you ended up doing. So you obviously have, have had a relationship with him over a long period of time. And uh, Ian S., one of our listeners, because we always put out our questions to our listeners on our social media accounts, by the way, if you want to head there, do, please. We're on all the social medias. Uh, Ian S. asked, with all the allegations around Derek May, um, how did you find him and did you see anything remiss around Derek May's behaviour. Of course, he's been uh, accused of uh, sexual assault by several women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, aside from all, all those, w when I went there, obviously, he was a musical hero, you, listening yeah. to his stuff, um, mm -hmm. and then being there, and he's a larger-than-life character. But um, we went into, I think it was one studio, and they got, like two sets of A-frames and a mixing desk to one side and all the effects and all the keyboards and stuff the other side. And they were using this um, MMT-8 sequencer. And and he got a swivel chair and he was going between like the effects and turning up faders and pressing buttons, this, that, and the other. And we were listening to this tune. I was just stood there like, watching him. Just, oh, my God, how is he doing this? Mm. And then... A few months later, I got sent some promos by Network, and it was one of the things that they were putting out, and it was a track, um, Fade to Black, in sync. And there's a reprise version on the B-side. Derek's not credited at all. And it was that track that I'd watched him do. So as soon as it came on like hairs what, wow. what hairs what hairs were left <laughs> all, all up on the back of the neck and just oh my god it's that tune you know and it's it, absolute mesmerizing to watch you know so he can knock out a tune definitely yeah and and in terms of his behavior since or these allegations does that is that disappointing to you is because he's your hero <clears throat> yeah um if if they are true and it's you, you, you don't want to belittle the, the allegations. Right. If someone's made the allegation and and, that, and it is true, it, yeah. It'd be, musicians are normal people. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's 
Gunsons, Baddens, you know, everyone's got skeletons in, in the closet. Some skeletons are bigger than others. Um, it, very disappointing and upsetting. Um, and, and, and like a lot of people, Africa Van Martin, Michael Jackson, etc., mm. it, it, it detracts from, from yeah. their music. Yeah, you know, you, and you don't know what to do for the best. No, you know, do, do I stop listening to it? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult. It's about a pressure. It's about a roar. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about your um, live performances because uh, we've talked about you in the studio. Um, what was your first proper rave booking as a rave act? And can you, I mean, given how shy you are um yeah. and, and not extroverted that you are uh how did you find it uh, the the first uh, live gig that we ever did um there was a night that i used to go on a wednesday night in a club called the dome in birmingham um and that's where i first met uh, man paris a uh, lot of the the birmingham djs played there it's where i heard a lot of the the, the tracks from like 1990 played out for the first time um, and we were offered a live gig and we'd never, never even thought about doing any music live. So we had to sh- trouble together a, a live set. They put us on this stage, projected, they, they had a, oh, there's the doorbell. <laughs> the wife even said this was going to happen. That's all right. It happens. Um, That's what life yeah. goes on, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's a record. <laughs> <laughs> um, that they filmed us and projected us behind us on a big screen. Right. And it was me and Chris. Chris had an Ensonic SQ80 and that that had like an onboard sequence. It was the it was the keyboard that um Adamski used. Um so you had an onboard sequencer. So you had like your baseline, then your baseline with strings and then like a noodly bit. So you could go through your different patterns. And then I'd have a 909 that I bought in Detroit with like a drum pattern for each track and then turn the instruments up to turn the kick up, turn the snares up, turn the hi-hats up. So we were basically doing what Adamski was doing on his own, but it was two of us. Right. And our, our first PA was me and Chris looking down, just doing that, occasionally looking at each other, and that was it. And my girlfriend at the time said, oh, they projected you being really boring on a screen behind you. So just us looking down at a keyboard. Um, so that kind of, it, it made us want to perfect the live set a bit more and not be so, so boring. And we did the Nexus 21 PAs for, for, there was like a big overlap where we were doing them in late 1990, early 91, right up until I'd said the summer of 91 by which time the alternate ones had taken over. But I didn't want alternate to be boring. I wanted it to be something completely different to Nexus 21 so people didn't think we were the same. So with, with alternate, um, I got all the tracks together for our first PA as, as uh, alternate, got all the tracks together, put them on like a quarter-inch tape machine, edited them so they it, it went straight from one track to another in time got like a half an hour PA, um, put it, recorded it onto DAT, and we just played the DAT and karate chopped the keyboards. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> ju- just just to be, you know, like, so that people didn't think we were the same people. 
But is there is it is it difficult to do a genuine live PA and be exciting too? Because you are concentrating so hard on all of the buttons and the uh, keyboards and whatnot and the sampling machines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, I've never done it, but it looks incredibly complex. Yeah. But is it hard to do such something so complex and be exciting too live? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, you, you know, I mean, when you look at like the big PAs that are actually you know playing live. Um, you know, like Orbital or Chemical Brothers, a lot of it is the the lasers and the visuals and everything. Because two two blokes behind a bunch of keyboards isn't isn't an exciting watch. You know, the the, the whole phase of loads of people playing PAs off their laptops it just looks like someone reading emails. Mm. You know, there's no there was no charisma. So that, so that then, we'll, we'll come to Prodigy later, but, you know, that's why you have to have other stuff while yeah. you do, you know, while Liam, for instance, does his boring stuff behind the keyboard, you know, yeah. you, that's why you would have those, you know, the dancers and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, well, John Lennon asks, um, when he first set up his live PA, how hard was it to learn to use all the drum machines and synths? Because there weren't any tutorials back then. I mean, to me, it all just looks like a massive pain in the ass. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, I mean... It, uh, when we went to Detroit, um, I really wanted a 909. You know, it was the sound of techno. Um, and Jay Denham said he'd got a mate who lived in Chicago who was selling one for $600. And, and I ain't got 600 quid. Um, so I asked the record label, you know, is there any way you'd be able to get it and uh, I'd pay it back? And they bought this 909 and I sat up in the hotel room and press play on it, and it was full of. I thought it was going to be full of like techno drum patterns, and I was going really excited. And it was just full of like um, turn up the bass, hip house kind of patterns. And I was like, how on earth do I? And it, it just meant me sitting there pressing buttons. And, oh, this, this does this, and this does this, just working out. You know, I didn't get a manual with it, and it took me ages to, to learn how to, how to work it. Um, I worked best when someone gets a piece of kit and and shows me and i can write it down in my own language how i get there well with these uh, youtube tutorials my eyes just glaze over yeah. I, I, I i can't think of any tutorial i've ever followed on youtube i think it yeah i i think i tend to probably work similarly it's like right come and actually show me what i oh. need to do rather than on a, on, on a screen. Um, Loki Sutherland says, not sure he'll remember this, but my mate booked them to do a live PA in Leicester. He received yes. and they didn't have a keyboard stand. And us looking around for something they can use, we came up with a genius idea of using an ironing board. So <laughs> Alternate played their live PA on a couple of ironing boards. Do you remember that? Uh, <laughs> it's not one I'd forget. <laughs> Standing there. And the thing was, right, we, we always said, like, there, there was... Um, we need keyboard stands for, for to put the keyboards on. And at the time, I hadn't got a keyboard stand. <clears throat> so can you get a keyboard stand? And yeah, yeah, uh, we might we might be able to get... And I think they'd borrowed their Nan's uh, ironing board. And I said, well, I don't really want to stand behind an ironing board. Can you get just like a, a drape, you know, any kind of dark-coloured sheet just to drape over it? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Got there, no drape. So I'm on, I'm on stage, like, and it was it was that height that was back breaking, um, with the keyboards and stuff on on top of uh, an ironing board. I mean, I always not not being knowing what the drugs did to you. 
I always thought people are going to see this and think, well, well a bunch of lemons, you know, we're using a, an iron bar. Probably half the crowd didn't even know we were on stage, so I, I shouldn't have worried. <laughs> but, yeah, um, it's not, that, not one I forget. Well, is that the strangest piece of equipment that you faked a live PA with? Um, well, the, the ones the ones that we used to use all the time, um, when we first started Rhythm OD, there was three of us. There was me, Dean, and a lad called Gareth Bunting. And he had uh, this little keyboard called the Gen SX-1000. And it looked at this little keyboard, loads of knobs on it. And he said, I can't get it to make a noise at all. I said, I'll give you a fiver for it. He sold it me for a fiver used it on like a couple of acid things, sampled, got some sub-bass out of it, sampled it, used it on um, one of the versions of Activate, but decided it would be great to use for uh, the, the PAs. So he made these big keyboard stands out of, out of wood. They were like lecterns, really. They f- like folded out, and you put the keyboard on. It was one's a big A, one's a big eight. And we used to like karate chop the keyboards. And people had come up at the end. It was like, oh, mate, that PA was amazing. What are those keyboards? They've got all the noises in. <laughs> and one of us would be holding like the, the lead because it hadn't even got a plug like on the end. Of, they weren't plugged in or nothing. But people like re- trying to remember these keyboards to go a- away and buy them. <laughs> That is amazing. And what, what what do you think it was that stood you out from from the nineties popular music scene, both with Nexus Twenty One and later with Alternate, and also the rave scene too? But just in general, was it was it was it the live performances or fake live performances? Um, I think with Nexus Twenty One, it was be- because we were trying to be Detroit, which no one else in the UK was. You know, a lot of people get influences and do their take on it, but. I really wanted to sound as as authentic Detroit as possible. I mean, the the first album, I don't think it it did, looking back at it, but a lot of people catalogue it in their their collections with all their Detroit stuff. Um, But with with Alternate, I think the live live performances, I mean, we we were doing them like pretty much every weekend whenever we had, you know, a single coming up um, to to promote the hell out of it. and th- I mean, the image played a massive part. Um, you know, that's, there's no, no doubt that that that's what stood us apart from everyone else. Yeah, well, I, I know a lot of people will know this story, but it is worth uh, exploring about how you came to get the uh, that image in the first place. Um, uh, the masks, of course, the radioactive suits, etc., etc. Tell those that don't know how you uh, how you came to end up with that thing, which again, accidentally, was the yeah. thing that has made you stand out over the years. Total, total accident again. We, we played. <laughs> At the Eclipse in Coventry um, as part of, there was a, a Warp Records and Network Records tour. Um, so there was LFO, Nightmares on Wax, Rhythmatic and Nexus 21. And we played there, I think it was like February or March sometime. And then when Infiltrate was on promo and, and doing well in the clubs, someone at uh, the Eclipse said, we want Alternate to do a PA. We hadn't thought of doing a PA at all. It was it, Alternate was like a proper side project where we'd recorded music um, and it was just a way of getting it out under a different name. Uh, Nexus 21 was, like, you know, the, the thing that we were really concentrating on. 
And I didn't want, again, being naive, I thought we've played as Nexus 21, Chris stood there, me stood there, me with two drum machines, him with two keyboards. People are going to see it and go, wait a minute, I saw these the other month. So I thought what we need to do is like completely cover ourselves up when no one knows who we are. And my brother was in the RF at the time. And I asked him, have you got any you know, like camouflage netting or anything like that? He said, I've got these, these vacuum-packed suits. Um, talk to those out. If you ever put a hoodie up and pull the cords, you look a proper plonker. So, like, we need to cover the rest of the face up. What, what can do it? Dust mask. Bosh. Because I was still mad into, like, the whole um, ATR acid thing with the, the day glow and so I painted the like fluorescent, put an eye on it for alternate. Yeah. There's there's like a pocket on the front where it's like a lift up flap. It's like, oh I'll write alternate on there. It just oh there's there's a patch on the arm where in warfare you'd put it's like a, a chemical reaction thing. So it'd tell you when there's chemicals in the air. It changed colour. So it's just like a felt patch. So I put an eight on there. So it's all just uh, just proper DIY bodge job. I mean, the, the alternate on the front was done in Tipex with a highlighter pen. <laughs> Amazing. There's, there's, then there's photos because it started to crack. I put sellotape over the top to stop it cracking. <laughs> then you put it in the washing machine, it all came off, so we had to get it embroidered. But it was it, it, it was just done for this one PA because we didn't think there was going to be any more. Well, what was the reaction at that PA to seeing this pretty revolutionary thing up on stage? I mean, it didn't seem it didn't sound that revolutionary when you talk about it, it was done in Tipex, but you know, yeah. it, it was it was new and different. How did yeah. it, how did it go down? It, honestly, it, like compared to the Nexus Twenty One PAs, where people knew the tunes, you know, we'd play like a version of Self Hypnosis, and people would recognise it and it'd go off for a group where no one knew right from the get-go until we played Infiltrate, none as Zooms, really. Um, and it, it, it properly went off. I mean, we'd do this thing where you'd, like, point at people in the crowd and they'd be like, oh, me, 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 and start going on. And people would think it was an invitation to get up on the on the stage. So we had a crowd invasion at the first gig to the point oh, you, probably, you probably couldn't see me and Chris at the back. You know, we'd already got, like about four of our mates from Sheffield, uh, Space from Asterix and Space MC in, um, and a girl came on to, to mime the bit for, for Infiltrate. And then all these people that came up on stage, it's actually in, in the video for Infiltrate is the footage from the first gig at the Eclipse. Right. And you'll see there's a bit, and it's, it's like the projections, me and Chris, and then there's a girl with like a white hat on doing all the, the dancing. And she came up from the crowd thinking, oh, she, we, we wanted her to be a part of the band. She came up, she was there for ages and in the area was like, Cause we're trying to do a PA here. Yeah? So I know that it was a side project, um, Alternate to Nexus 21, and actually you just wanted to, to try some other stuff out. But did that reaction to that first gig make you think, hang on, I think, that the, I think Alternate might be the one here? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a weird one because infiltrate was recorded on somebody else's remix budget it wasn't right we, we we're going to do like a new single it was we were doing a remix for someone we got four hours left of the studio we may as well make the most of the the time that we're paying for um put put the track together 
sampled that that bit off a cassette. I'd got it saved on a disc of the the Asterix in Space bit at the beginning. Um, did the track. Actually met Asterix in Space on the Saturday, which was like well spooky. But when Infiltrate was getting played in clubs off off promo, you could see it going off. And it went like it was the second alternate release, and the first one, you know, did did well purely on uh, value for money because there was eight tracks on a twelve inch, so you weren't just paying, you know, like yeah, five quid for one. You were getting eight tracks that you could play. Um, but then Infiltrate started doing well, and people, you know, we we turn up to do PAs, and you'd hear people singing the track. He's oh, is this you? And they're singing the lyric to it, so we knew it was it was you know kind of doing well um and then we we started doing more and more and more pas because because when the track was doing well people had then you know the promoters had heard of the name then they start booking you so it just it was you know kind of like a rolling situation where it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and how would you choose your samples um and especially ones from famous old songs like you know that uh, is it candy stanton's that this, 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 yeah that, you know, stuff like that. i mean if you'd have done that nowadays you'd have got sued to high hell right it was um when I, when i hear a tune and I, I like that breakbeat or i like that that stab noise or that bass sound or whatever so i'd got i catalogued like loads of bits um i can remember hearing pure by gto at that club in Birmingham, the Dome. Um, and it got like a crowd at the beginning uh, and uh, the track went on. Um, and it's quite a fierce in your face tune. And it was, that was the basis for Infiltrate, even though it was nothing like Infiltrate. Um, I, I wanted something with a crowd noise, an acidy kind of sound, a breakbeat, some sub bass, just loads of influences from different things. And then when we got the track playing, I've got this acapella as Anonymous Volume 2. I was just flicking through the acapellas, just seeing what went. Got to the Candy Satin bit. Didn't even know it was Candy Satin. Didn't know it was the B-side for Young Hearts Run Free. It was just, that works. And did you ever have any copyright issues? Because nowadays, when you've got algorithms hunting the internet for, uh, for, for example, songs and then basically just slapping them with a copyright issue, you wouldn't have had that nowadays because there's no internet. So did you ever get any copyright issues? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's somewhere where we paid upfront, you know, did deals with, with the people to make sure, you know, we've sampled this, kind of clear it, kind of, I mean, strings alive. Was the biggest one yeah um we were really lucky on it infiltrate because i used the chords i replayed the chords for uh, pacific state in it um and then we supported 808 state at brixton academy and gave a white label to uh, their tour dj and we were up on the balcony. I was with the 808 State lads, and he played it. And the tune came on. And I was like, I tapped them all on the shot. This is it. This is it. And then it got to the bit with Pacific State, and I'm like, oh, I forgot we did this. <laughs> <laughs> I 
and they all they all just looked at me. Was <laughs> like, oh, sorry, but they were cool with it. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> that is embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, they were cool with it. I mean, it would have been it would have been incredibly embarrassing if they said, "I fucking hate this." What have you done to my yeah. my ch-? Yeah. Um, and, and what about now? Like, how does the sampling situation then compare to now? And, and how does that impact on the way that you and others who are very heavily on samples create their music? Um, you, you've got to be very clever these days. But there is still that. I've seen it where people have sent a label a tune and they've wholesale nicked like a big chunk of somebody else's and the label won't know that it's somebody else's and they, they've sent me a tune saying what do you think this is is going to be our next release and like you have heard this haven't you and play on the original and that you're joking um the, because i think a, a, whereas back then people were actually buying the record and sampling chunks off record now things are floating about as you know like sample packs and wavs on the internet and you can just you can sa- get stuff and you won't have a clue where they're from so you might assume that they're you know like original things where someone has played these chords and they're for anyone to sample um so you've got to really think about it more so now than than you did back then are people unrealistic when you nowadays when you ask them if you can sample tunes or more unrealistic than they were perhaps in, in the past when you were doing it in terms of the money that they were after for signing off those samples um I, a lot of tunes are built around a sample. So if you didn't have that sample, then you wouldn't have made the tune, basically. So a lot of people will ask for, you know, like 100% of, of the publishing as well as, um, you know, a fee for clearing the sample because you've worked everything around that sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I get, I get asked all the time, uh, can you send me the stems for your tunes? I want to do a remix of your tunes like that. That's not... That's not how it works. No. <laughs> but but these, these days, that's how it, you know, anyone can get stems off, off the internet. Somehow they find like a, a, an acapella or whatever parts you track. They'll do a remix and put it up on SoundCloud for people to download. You're like, wait a minute, that's my record. You're just giving it away. <laughs> and they, they don't seem, it, right. it's, the, it's the same thing as the whole phone thing. People see it as that's how it is. And what's the yeah. shittest remix of your music that you've ever heard? Oh, oh there's, 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 <laughs> too there's, many. there's too many. But on it, frequency just gets absolutely hammered remix-wise, and some of them are horrendous. Brilliant. Um, the, Andrew Murphy asked, the kiddie sample, top one nice one, get sorted uh, on Activate. Top one nice one, get sorted. Top one nice one, get sorted. Who was that? And uh, also, what's she up to now? Um, that that was Claire, um, and it, it does say MC Crazy Claire on, frequency, on the, frequency, the record. Frequency. The record label did actually uh, get a, a producer from America to pretend that they were MC Crazy Claire and do interviews at the time. Um, even though Claire was three years old at the time, she's the daughter of of the record label boss, um, and he and he was he he liked the whole Charlie thing, mm. so it was like let's do let's do our like little take on 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 Charlie having like that kid's voice in a track. Um, 
And we, we were thinking, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to work. Even when we'd done the samples, this isn't going to work. It wasn't until it got it like looping over that centre part in the tra- tune where we thought, actually, you know, this, this does work. But she's, a, she's an extremely accomplished tattoo artist now. Oh, right. Yeah. Where is she from? Uh, in in the Midlands, I mean, we're all we're all from from the Midlands, but she right. she's in her mid thirties now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How old does that make me feel? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, I bet she still dines out on that. I would. Um, and and back to the costumes. Um, it must have been incredibly hot performing in those. Um, have you found something more lightweight, or do you so, still sweat? No, your I'm not that. I'm not that clever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you because, think of all the PPE washing around uh, the UK now that actually you'd be able to find some that was uh, a little bit more lightweight. Yeah, it was because it was only made for that that first PA. There wasn't a, a great deal of thought put into it as like, actually, we're going to get really warm in these suits. Um, so we did think we were just going to be doing the one PA. We, we cut the charcoal out of the suits to make them slightly more lightweight we've heard so many horror stories of people who didn't and the charcoal came out all over their normal clothes if they wore them or their mom put them in a washing machine and ruined a load of washing because the charcoal came out um but i had my original suit from i think 1991 until 2015 when i bought a second suit and, and put the first one into into retirement um but yeah they are stupidly hot. Uh, no air conditioning in a lot of the old clubs. Even nowadays, you know, you ask people, can, can you get like a, a fan next to the DJ booth? Just a, oh, sorry, mate, couldn't get a fan. Oh. But, on the, but on the balance of probability, uh, you know, on the balance of success, it, it, it's probably a price worth paying overall. Oh, t- oh totally. Yeah, not, not, not my cleverest idea, but probably my cleverest <laughs> idea. Uh, John Zaremba says, as someone who's lived in the US of A, I only know the mythology surrounding Alternate, and I'd like to know how much of that was really true. For example, did they fly overhead in a hot air balloon and drop cookies and biscuits laced with E onto a crowd from the sky? Um, The the mythology bit was... um, It started off with John McCready, who was like the press guy for, for Network, and he saw us... We turned up at uh, the, the building where it was called Stratford Place um, in my mini and I pulled up in front of the building and I could see them all in the window and I went forward and then I reversed and then I went and then kept doing this for about 15 minutes and they all just stood really bemused and they kind of realised what a pair of idiots we were. So they said, right, we can roll with this and, and make up some silly stories they made loads of different little stories about um, because there was a, a, a spate where people were having their air horns taken off them by bouncers. So they made like pocket ones. Uh, disco biscuits were, were real biscuits for the hungry raver. Um, it was just a way of while you weren't in the public eye because you hadn't got a single out. It was a way of keeping you in magazines and the music papers. There's a little story about you before, like your next single had come along. So they made some really elaborate ones, like the the hot air balloon one, for instance. Um, we we did a piece with Select Magazine, and the idea was we would go up in a hot air balloon, and we'd got some. You know, I've, I've been Sainsbury's and bought some little 
uh, Christmas puddings and they made new like labels for them and they were called Brand E, uh, The Poor Knows the Score, uh, Robin Hood brand Christmas puddings and we were going to throw them to people in Stafford. <clears throat> Someone before we actually started it said, wait a minute, that's going to turn into a projectile missile by the time it reaches the ground and you're going to cave someone's skull in so I thought maybe that's not a great idea and the weather was too bad anyway so we never made it off the trailer you know there's photos of us and we stood in the basket which is on the trailer the photographer's on the floor shooting up at us with sky behind us so it looks like we're in a hot air balloon we're in the basket but we're still on the trailer on the ground um, and then we drove to Stafford and tried to give away Christmas puddings in the centre of Stafford. But if you ever have a geezer wearing a chemical warfare suit, walk up to you <laughs> with a Christmas pudding. Oh, one of these. And all the housewives are like, no, 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 sorry. <laughs> and just, we couldn't give them away. Brilliant. Was, it, was, was, was stuff like this, you know, like KLF, for instance, you know, burning the million pounds, whether or not that actually happened or not, I have no idea. But was was it you and KLF and acts like that just trying to find a way to stand out in a crowded market? We were, a lot of people said we were like the budget KLF, um, purely because we had like the mad ideas just like them, but they somehow had this massive budget. I mean, they they bought a submarine, um, but don't know why you buy a submarine, and it just there's photos of them stood next to a submarine. But it it was something that you know added to the mystery of the KLF, um, and we hired a tank for the evaporate video. Um, so we we seemed to do similar things for them, but just on a bit of a smaller budget. Um, but it, it it did it did all work to help keep your name about, uh, which which was the the whole reason behind it. Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now an all-video platform, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s. Ray podcast. All donations will be ploughed back into the podcast, including expenses to get around the country, interviewing some of your Ray favourites, and also improving our equipment. It's about a fresh up, it's about a roar.